Please uh, look with me at Matthew 24, and we'll read the first 14 verses. And if you have, uh, if you have some dexterity, you might uh, stick a couple of fingers back in the book of Isaiah, because we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 35 and Isaiah chapter 61 in just a few minutes. Or you can just wait. Let's read together these verses, Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold." But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations. And then the end will come. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your word and for the the sobering realistic warnings and yet the deep and encouraging hope that you give to us in this passage. Please be with us as we think your thoughts after you and as we wrestle with your word and seek to understand how it has application to us right now here today. Grant your spirit to these ends, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. I was um, listening to my iPod yesterday, and I had a Pandora station on, if you know about Pandora. It's this remarkable music service that enables you to cull all kinds of music from all kinds of places. And and, um, I happened to be listening to the Eagles radio yesterday, one of my 
favorite bands. But this song came on and the opening verses of this or verse of this song, admittedly not uh, great poetry and admittedly probably not great music in the great scheme of things, but nevertheless uh, significant for me. The first line of this, okay, really great song (laughs) went like this. Ooh, I feel the storm is threatening my very life today. If I don't get some shelter, I'm going to fade away. I feel a storm threatening my very life today. If I don't get some shelter, I'm going to fade away. Okay, admittedly, not great poetry, and unless you're a Rolling Stones fan, probably not, in your mind, great music. But a sentiment that I suspect every one of us has felt, maybe even as recently as Friday morning, when perhaps you heard the same news report that I heard about this tragedy in Aurora, Colorado. Um, how do we make sense of these things? What's interesting to me is that on Wednesday or Thursday of last week, a suicide bomber walked into a building someplace along the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan and blew himself up. He was a pro-Taliban terrorist, and he walked into a building that was occupied by anti-Taliban people. And there were women and children in this building. And he blew himself up. I guess I make that point just so that we do remember that what happened in Aurora, Colorado, while tragic and grievous, is not an isolated thing. And whether it's in Aurora, Colorado, or along the Pakistan Afghanistan border, we're stuck trying to make sense of all of these things, aren't we? Stuck trying to sort all of this out, confronted by things that just exceed in some ways our capacities, our reasoning abilities to understand. I feel a storm is threatening my very life today. If I don't get some shelter, I'm going to fade away. This passage uh, that we've read, Matthew 24, doesn't, doesn't deal explicitly or specifically with a 24-year-old man walking into a movie theater and opening fire on unsuspecting and innocent people. It doesn't address specifically the matter of a suicide bomber walking into a building and blowing himself up, killing who knows how many dozens of people, including women and children, non-combatants. It doesn't address those things specifically, but this passage outlines for us, and Jesus outlined for his disciples what they could expect for the rest of their lives and what his church could expect between the whole period, between his ascension and his return in glory. 
And I feel like this passage, although there are probably lots of passages that we could look at, I feel like this passage does a pretty good job of putting into perspective or giving context to the kind of thing that we, that we read about and heard about that transpired in Colorado this last week and which has touched us as a congregation. So I want to listen in to Jesus' conversation with his disciples in which he responds to their questions, asks or answers the questions that they raise in verse 3 of this passage. Um, I think, and this is your homework for the week, I suppose, your reading assignment. I think we need to keep in mind that chapters 24 and 25, what are, what are referred to as the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' last discourse with his disciples before his passion. It's the fifth of five discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. These 24th and 25th chapters together the explicit teaching of Jesus, and then the parables that are connected to that teaching are all designed to answer this question that the disciples raise in verse 3. And that question is, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And of the close of the age. So I want to ask some questions of this passage. Number one, what were the disciples looking for? Which is to say, what did the disciples want? I said this last Friday morning at the refuge, we are all wanters. We are all wanters. Deep in our souls, we are wanters. You you, you cannot escape wanting. You cannot escape desiring. You cannot escape longing. You cannot escape looking for something. What is it that the disciples were looking for? And what did Jesus tell them to expect? What did Jesus tell them to expect? And where did Jesus locate their real hope? Three big questions. What were the disciples looking for? That's where we're going to camp for most of the rest of our time. What were they looking for? And what did Jesus tell them to expect? And where did Jesus locate their real hope? What did the disciples want? What were they looking for? The answer to their question is actually found in the language that they use when they ask the question. Again, verse 3, tell us. When will these things take place? The things that Jesus has referred to in verse 2, verses 1 and 2, the destruction of the temple. When will these things take place? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? What the disciples longed for, what they were looking for, what they wanted, what they desired was the end of this age and the beginning of the age to come. That's what they were looking for. That's what they longed for. That's what they wanted. And their thinking about history was framed and shaped basically in that way. They had an understanding of history that worked very simply like this. There is this age, the age that is characterized by brokenness, by tragedy, 
by sickness, by death, by oppression, by being under the boot of the Roman authorities. That's this age. But what they were looking for was the end of that age and the age to come, which is the age of liberation and the age of freedom. The age in which oppression ends and the age in which sickness and death are no longer present. And what moves you from this age to the age to come is this thing found throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, this thing called the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord. That's the hinge upon which all of history turns. This age is hinged to the age to come by the day of the Lord. And when the day of the Lord comes, this age ends and the age to come begins. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were longing for. And they were so fixated on this. Think about this, that even after the resurrection of Jesus, I'm giving you the scheme before we look at some specific passages. Even after the resurrection of Jesus, when the disciples are gathered with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, the very place where Jesus is teaching in Matthew 24, but after his resurrection and after he has been with them for 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God, the nature of the kingdom of God. Even after those 40 days of instruction, post-resurrection, just before his ascension, Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, basically stay in Jerusalem because if you stay in Jerusalem, you'll be baptized, not as John's baptism with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And their response to that is, Bingo! Is it now that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? See, this stuff is woven so deeply into the fabric of their existence. These momentous events, these momentous occasions, these redemptive acts of God, when they begin to understand these things, a penny drops for them, and when the penny drops, they can't help but think that this sequence of events, all wrapped up in this idea of the day of the Lord, will lead to the inauguration of the new age, the coming of the new age, and the end of all of this misery, oppression, sickness, death, and sadness. And Jesus responds to the disciples, if you remember Acts 1, is basically this. None of your business. None of your business. But you will receive power from on high. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. His response to the question post-resurrection, just prior to the ascension, his response to the question is, there is work to be done. There is work to be done before this age comes to an end. Now, where did they get these notions? This is where I want us to look just briefly, painfully, briefly, that's some passages in Isaiah. You know, I, Isaiah is 
Isaiah is the gospel of the new age. Isaiah is the gospel of the Messiah. Isaiah is the gospel of the kingdom in prophetic form. You've got, you got to familiarize yourself with Isaiah. It is a glorious book. It ends with this promise of a new heaven and a new earth. Isaiah 66. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, and then 11 and 12. And notice these two things that are going on here. We get some of this promise and some of this hope that so shaped the disciples' understanding. It shall come to pass in the latter days. I wish I had time to connect all of these dots. The idea of the latter days, the last day, In that day, the day of the Lord, whenever you see these phrases, like in the latter days, it takes up all of those other phrases, this idea of the day of the Lord, the coming and visitation of the Lord. We'll see it in Isaiah 35. What Isaiah is seeing out in the future is the prophetic hope, the hope associated with the day of the Lord. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word from the Lord from Jerusalem and he shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and nations shall not lift up sword against nation and neither shall they learn war anymore. Don't you long for that? See, that's what so shaped the understanding of the disciples. That this day was coming when warfare would end and nation would no longer rise up against nation. And God Himself would judge disputes. I was going to try to make a funny joke, but I won't. You can ask me about it after the service. God will be the judge, not the Supreme Court. Not some judicatory in Iraq or Iran. God will be the judge and he, the one as was prayed, as Zach prayed, who is perfectly merciful, perfectly righteous, perfectly just. His perfections are not lacking. He will enter into judgment with the nations. He will decide the disputes that cause nations to rise up against one another. Don't you long for that? I mean, don't you long for real justice? Real righteousness? In everybody's case except your own? And then verses 11 and 12. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. The Lord of hosts has a day, my friends. 
It's a good day. It's the day in which righteousness will intervene and will prevail. And disputes will be resolved. And there will be an end to oppression and violence. Do you want to hear some more about it? Turn to Isaiah 35. We're just, we're just playing hopscotch across the book of Isaiah. I'm going to read this whole thing and make a quick comment about it. This is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. Listen to this. I'm I'm not going to be able to make just one comment. I'm sorry. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. I fly over the Sahara every year. I fly over the Sahara in the daylight. When you're at 40,000 feet and you look outside the airplane when you're over the Sahara, all you see in every direction is sand. From 40,000 feet. You can see a lot from 40,000 feet. And all you see after you cross the southern shore of the Mediterranean, over that coast, all you see for hours is sand. And God is saying, the desert will spring to life, burst to life like the crocus. For those of you from the south who don't know what crocus are, they're those Beautiful little purple and yellow plants that grow up north. You stick them in the ground in the fall and they come out in the spring along with the tulips and all the other stuff. I think. (laughs) I'm getting some nods, so I'm right. Beautiful. Can you imagine 40,000 feet over the Sahara Desert and it's no longer a desert, but it is exploding with life and with color. It's no longer an unsafe place. It's a habitable place. It's no longer a dangerous place. It's a place of beauty. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. What is it that strengthens weak hands, that makes feeble knees firm? It is this hope. It is this hope. Keep going. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame man will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Waters will break forth in the wilderness and there will be streams in the desert. And the burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway will be there. And I love these verses. A highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. And the unclean will not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. And this is the verse I love. Even if they are fools, they will not go astray. Do you know how deeply comforting that is to a fool like me? Even a fool in this place 
will not go astray. Why? Because he'll no longer be a fool. Finally, the fear of the Lord will be all he cares about. And his sheer delight will be in God in his glory. See, foolishness doesn't have anything to do with a lack of knowledge. Foolishness has to do with what your ultimate reference point is. And the wise person is a person who has the God of heaven and earth, the glory of the God of heaven and earth, as his or her ultimate reference point. And the day is coming when, by God's grace, I'll no longer be a fool, being distracted by all of these gods who are no gods, by all of these gods who cannot be for me and to me what God alone can be. I can't wait for that day. There'll be no lion there, no ravenous beast, but the redeemed shall walk there and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. What is the good news that comes to the poor? It is the good news of the hope that is so woven into the fabric of Isaiah 35 and of Isaiah 2. The day when this God acts with vengeance and with power, with recompense in His hands. This day when God intervenes and acts with power and compassion, mercy and justice. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. Don't you long for that day? I mean, even if all of the words and phrases don't exactly compute, can't you hear the joy in it? Can't you hear the hope in it? Can't you hear the song that is in it? And this is what shaped the thinking of the disciples. That's why when Jesus appeared on the scene and started doing the very things that are described here in Isaiah 61, That is why in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus took this passage of Scripture and read this passage of Scripture as his text for his ordination sermon, his first public ministry in Nazareth, 
That's why everybody was startled and amazed. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim glad tidings to the poor. And then what did he do? He went about healing blind people, healing lame people so that the blind could see and the lame could leap like a deer. You see, the disciples, when they saw Jesus doing the things he was doing, hearing Jesus say the things that he was saying, they could not help but jump to the next step and say, this has to be it. This has to be it. This age must be coming to an end. And this glorious age to come must be imminent. It must be right here. See, sometimes we disparage the disciples because we think they didn't get it. Let me suggest something to you. They got it better than we do. They got it better than we do. I'm not being critical of us, necessarily. Their expectations were not shaped, not informed by the things of this world to the extent that ours sometimes are. They got what this age was all about. Look, if they had heard the news reports from Aurora, Colorado, would they have wept? Absolutely. Would they have grieved? Absolutely. Would they have mourned? Absolutely. Would they have been surprised? I don't think so. I don't think so. They had seen and had lived with evil unmasked. We're so blessed in this country to have had evil masked in so many ways for such a long period of time. Then when evil comes unmasked, we not only grieve, but we are surprised. See, I really wonder if it isn't the case that the disciples got it, meaning the realities of this world and the hope of the age to come much better than we do. What were they looking for? They were looking for that age to come. Their hope was in that age to come. What did Jesus tell them to expect? In a very real sense, he is telling them in Matthew 24 to expect more of the same. He's telling them to expect more of the same. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. There will be famines and earthquakes. What is more, in addition to all of these things, which Jesus says are just the beginnings of the birth pangs, right? Something is going to be delivered. Something is going to emerge from all of this. What is the thing that's going to emerge? The new age. The age of restoration. The age when all of this stuff is past. But there is a birth process through which we all must go in order to get to that place. And what are the birth pains? What are the things that characterize this age? Warfare, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes in various places. I don't watch religious broadcasting. I'll pick a fight here. 
Honestly, I think you could pull the plug on 98% of it and we all would be better for it. That's my opinion. You can take me out behind the woodshed if you want. 98% of it could go and we all would be better. One of the reasons we'd be better is we would go to churches rather than to television sets. We'd be part of local communities of faith, not sitting at home watching the celebrities who do way better what I do than I do. That's why they're there and I'm here. You could pull the plug on 98% of it. So much of what I hear is all of this, and I I say I hear it when I don't even really listen to it, but I, I still hear it. It's this idea that all of these things, everything from something like Aurora, Colorado, to the latest earthquake or a famine in Africa, these things are indicators that Jesus is coming soon. Jesus says these are the things that are going to happen across the whole of the history of the life of the church. This is what you should expect. This is what you can count on. Grieve over it? Absolutely. Be saddened by it? Look, a Christian should be more saddened, should grieve more deeply than anybody else in the culture. Jesus says during this period of time, verse 13, verse 12, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Don't we see that in our culture? For whom should the love of people and of God not grow cold? For Christians, Christians should grieve most, the most deeply. But Christians should not be surprised when these tragedies, this unmasking of evil, will happen periodically. These are the birth pangs. We live still in this present age. We are still plagued by this painful process of birthing that leads eventually to the emergence of the world we all long for. And it is grief and agony that will characterize this life. I I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, and honestly, I don't believe I am. I believe I'm simply telling you what Jesus told his disciples. They understood. They got. They were shaped by the expectations of the age to come. All Jesus is telling them in these verses is that they should expect, until the final realization of that age to come, they should expect heartache, and difficulty. Not just in a general sense, but if you look at verses 9 through 14, difficulty will be turned upon them personally. Christians should not be surprised at every form and level of persecution. You will be opposed. You will be opposed. If they hated me, they will hate you. That's what's going to characterize life between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. And where does Jesus then fix their hope? Jesus fixes their hope, verses 29 and following, on his own final return. Keep the return of Jesus in the center of your field of vision. 
Jesus says, verse 30, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. Check out 1 Thessalonians 4 for trumpet calls. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. What is the great hope of the Christian? Where is the Christian's hope fixed? It is not. It's not on this coming election, friends. It's not on the Supreme Court making what someone perceives to be the right decision. The hope of the Christian is upon the return of the Son of Man, the coming of Jesus. When what is described in Isaiah chapter 2 will be fulfilled, Jesus, the King, will enter into judgment with the nations and every inequity will be addressed. Every injustice will be addressed. Every wrong will be righted. I was thinking about starting the sermon by asking you to do this, but I'll end the sermon with this. And you'll smile when I ask you this question. Some of you will. What's your favorite fairy tale? What's your favorite fairy tale? What's remarkable to me is how gospel realities, I believe, woven into the fabric of existence, show up in things like fairy tales. Some of you know what mine is. It's Robin Hood. Robin Hood and his band of merry men and women. Friar Tuck, Long John, Maid Marian, the whole bunch of them. A band of merry men and women. Why are they merry? They live in Sherwood Forest. The evil Prince John is upon the throne. The Sheriff of Nottingham is running around harassing and oppressing people. Why are they merry? Because they know that Richard the Lionheart is coming back. And when he comes back, Sherwood Forest will be liberated from its oppression and every wrong will be righted. Here's another of my favorites. Cinderella, when the prince finds Cinderella and slips the slipper on her foot, all of the plans of the wicked stepmother and the wicked stepsisters vanish. And goodness and rightness and beauty are restored to the kingdom. That's what Jesus is doing for his disciples. Your hope is a good hope. Your longing is a good longing. Your desire is a right desire. But it's out there. And it is fixed upon the day of the return of the Son of Man. This thing in Aurora is painful, but it is not the last chapter in the story. The return of the Son of Man begins the writing of the last chapter, which as C.S. Lewis so aptly puts it, goes on forever 
in which every page is better than the page before. That's the hope of the Christian. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we grieve. We grieve with Jack. We grieve for these families in Aurora, Colorado. But we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We have hope, Jesus. Press that hope into our hearts and cause us to be the means by which that hope is communicated out into this world so that you might be praised and honored. We ask in your name. Amen.